You are Locked On Syracuse, your daily podcast on the Syracuse Orange, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome in a Wednesday edition of the Locked On Syracuse podcast. Tim Leonard and Tyler Aki here with you. You can follow the show on Twitter at LO underscore Syracuse, and we appreciate you listening as always. Feel free to subscribe. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, thank you. Welcome in. And we're here with you every single weekday giving you the latest Syracuse news. Hit subscribe. And if you know someone that might like the podcast, let them know. Right. We're here every single day. We got basketball. We got football thoughts for you every single day here on this show. So spread the good word as well about the show. Yeah. And as we get closer and closer to basketball season, we're doing our 10 thought Syracuse basketball. 10 thoughts as we kind of previewed the season and those are dropping every Wednesday and Thursday on the show so essentially if you're really into Syracuse basketball and maybe fed up with Syracuse football and you just want to hear the basketball thoughts be on the the lookout for (laughs) for Wednesday Thursday and then if you like Syracuse football a lot and you like Syracuse basketball some maybe you want to just hop on with us on Monday Tuesday and Friday because Friday we'll get back to kind of previewing what is the game this week and the X's and O's and the matchup for Boston College. But you to- know how I know that basketball is back, Tim? Why is that? You know what I had to do today? I had to renew my Ken Palm Oh, yeah. I'm sure if Bayheim's listening right now, he's throwing his earbuds out or whatever <laughs> he's got. But I, I, I went, I renewed my Ken Palm subscription today, and I'm ready to go for yeah. this upcoming basketball season. I'm really excited because... We're kind of in a mixed bag with Syracuse. We don't really know what we're going to get with this team. They could be really good this year. But I think their their floor is a lot higher than last year also. I'm with you on that. I'm definitely pretty bullish on this team. And for those that are maybe new to the podcast, maybe you haven't figured that out yet. But I'm getting to the point where I'm I'm starting to really think that I'm going to be dropping some hot takes on the sort of once we get to what is their record – where will they finish in the ACC, and will they make the tournament, slash how far will they go if they do make the tournament type of conversation. But happy to hear you got Ken Palm back. I know Beheim thinks a kindergartner knows more than, than Ken Pomeroy, but we, we love Ken Palm on the site, and I'm sure we'll dig through some Ken Palm stats today. Today's topic is the X factor of the season in a lot of people's eyes. It's the center position, and it's the starting center, presumably, Barama Sidibe. And obviously the conversation with him, we will focus on just what is a good Barama Sidibe season here as he enters his senior year. Has been a troublesome career so far at Syracuse. We all know that by now, partially because of the knee injuries. But then we see him turn this corner in the last six games last year. He goes for 10 points per game and 11.6 rebounds a game in the last six games double-digit rebounds in every single one of the last six games, has some huge games against UNC, against some big-time competition, and it was finally the Barama that we were waiting on, and now he, to me, Ty, is literally the X-factor of this season. That's not a hot take, but he's the guy that will determine how high Syracuse's ceiling can go. He's not going to be the MVP of this team. That's obviously going to be something that goes to one of the three guys in in the backcourt, whether it's Joe Girard, Buddy Bayheim, or Alan Griffin, who Matthew Gutierrez has as his sleeper for MVP this year. 
But you're right. This is the most important player on this team right here. And I, I think it's really, really cool that you brought up those last six games from a season ago because something clicked for him. And it wasn't just on the offensive side of the ball. You did bring up the, the near double-double that he averaged from a season ago, almost 10-12 and 12 to close out in those final six games. But defensively, almost three blocks and close to two and a half steals per yeah. game as well. And he's doing that. And I'm looking right now, he didn't fall out. In any or no, I take that back. I, I'm, I'm my NBA brain is still on because that's the last <laughs> basketball I watched. He fouled out only twice in those final six games. Only which, twice if in you, six games is, is still. If you sad, look at the but... six games prior to that, he fouled out five times and had four fouls in the other one. So something got better there, and that's something that you need to continue to see out of Barama Sidibe because talk about a guy who can take a big step. The center position is the biggest question mark right now because even though Sidibe maybe sold you a little bit at the end of the year, you want to see him go out and do it again this year and prove that he's healthy. And we started to see a healthier, just more active, and just more engaged Barama Sidibe at the end of last year. And Jim Beheim talked about how he told him something in regards to what he needs to be doing a little bit better, being a little bit more active, I think, was kind of his message to him. And he joked, like, maybe I'm a bad coach because I guess I should have told him that a lot earlier than once he told him that six games before. That's what he said kind of after UNC in that crazy game in Greensboro where it was basically the last game before uh, the world went went crazy, obviously, and COVID and everything. But, you know, you think back to what Syracuse was doing at the end of the season, and it gives you more optimism for what they could be this season. I want to be clear that to me, Barama Sidibe's ceiling is very limited still. I think his ceiling is essentially what we saw in the last six games of last season. He's not going to be a focal point of the offense. And at this point, no. we've we've seen enough of Sidibe to know that he will not kind of reach some untapped potential that hasn't already happened. I mean, he's been with the program now for four years. So it's not like we're talking about Quincy Garrier and you're wondering, oh, like, can he make that sophomore leap? And we haven't quite seen the full book on him yet. So it's promising in that regard. But Sidibe's experienced and he's been around the block now. And I do think he's healthier than he was in his first couple of seasons because we always saw some flashes like that Pittsburgh game that I believe was in his sophomore year. Where... Which one? Because it feels right. like every <laughs> Pittsburgh game for yeah. him is that Pittsburgh game. I mean, he's dominated the Panthers. I don't have the, the exact split. No, Bayheim joked just about a second. that. Yeah. But and... it's unbelievable how he just terrorizes that team. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. Which Pittsburgh game for sure. But I think that first time that he did it to Pittsburgh was pretty eye-opening to me because we saw this different caliber of player. And the good news is, when Barama Sidibe is good, this is a completely different team. They were 7-2 and two last year when he had 10-plus rebounds in a game. Kind of, you know, lackluster that he only had 10-plus rebounds in nine games, considering that the final six games he had 10-plus rebounds. You're going to need to see that percentage of double-figure rebound games go up this season, I'd say. And obviously, we'll get into the strengths and weaknesses of the team on tomorrow's show, but rebounding is going to be a huge question mark again and what he can bring rebounding is critical but another thing for me with Sidibe is can he stay out of foul trouble and that's really going to be kind of the burning question for him this season and when you look at Sidibe too the foul trouble is big and it's 
promising that he kind of limited that towards the end of the year. But it's also, can he just, can you put him out there and you're not playing four on five offense? Yes. You know what I mean? Like, I always bring this up with Chris Elmore when he was on the offensive side of the ball for the Syracuse football team. Whenever he you would split him out wide left, you were playing 10 on 11 offense. It's what you it's what you were doing. And when I look at Sadibe, I see the same thing. Can you play 5 on 5 offense with him out there? Can he be a threat? And towards the end of the year he was 71% from the field. And not just that, but his free throw numbers were way up too. He shot 55% for the season, but towards the end of the year he was shooting in the mid 60s about. And he wasn't just a total liability. I mean, there were times where he was going 7 of 8 from the stripe. But I think you're right. The fouling thing, it got absurd last year. Absolutely absurd to the point where, I mean, Syracuse really had to dig sometimes into their bench to try to find a center. You're going small with an already limited defensive lineup. And that's what really hurt this team. If you're getting 25 to 30 minutes, if you can have Sidibe and Frank Anselm out there for every single minute of the game. And maybe you sprinkle in one or two minutes where it's just Dolajai at the five. But if you can get that, that significantly upgrades the ceiling of this defense and the ceiling of this team. No doubt. And he's actually a pretty effective shot blocker when he's out there. He just isn't out there for as long as you'd like him to be because he averaged 6.8 fouls per 40 minutes. I mean... That's a staggeringly high number, and you'd have to think it could only improve going into next season in terms of getting less fouls. That was the second worst mark in the Power Five last year. I mean, that's almost. I can't believe seven there's fouls. someone that's got a higher one. Yeah, I, like, I forget who it was. Think of how. Yeah, think about how much he fouled, and the fact that there's someone who is higher than that. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah, it was by far the worst in the ACC and Quincy Garrier was third worst in the ACC in fouls per 40 minutes. So, as a whole, this team has to just get crisper at not fouling Dolzhai as well. And that goes back to kind of what were the fouls last year. They weren't fouls that, that's the part that really drove me nuts. They weren't fouls that were needed or the defense broke down and then all of a sudden someone's right under the hoop and your best bet is to just hack the guy and make a low-quality free-throw shooter, earn it from the line, or it's transition and Syracuse can't get back, and then Sidibe is just fouling to kind of limit an opportunity at a wide-open layup. His fouls were ticky-tacky stuff where he's just reaching when he doesn't need to, and he's not in the right spot, and he has to overcompensate. So I guess on one hand, that's good in terms of how much can he improve and how much can he limit the fouls going into next season? Because there's tons of room for improvement on where the fouls came from. It's not like he jumps and every time he goes to block a shot, he fouls someone. It's just kind of he makes some silly fouls every single game. I feel like there game. were a lot of rebounding fouls that yes. he would make too. Like those are the ones that really kind of set you off as a coach because sometimes maybe he's getting the... I, I think part of it is because he's so thin too that he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt when he's going up against some of these just filled-out bodies on some of these other teams, and he's not given that benefit of the doubt sometimes. All right, quick break. I want to tell you guys about our favorite beer out there. That is, of course, Coors Light. Do you ever feel like you're always on these days, always just go, 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 24-7, need to be on the clock? There's an expectation for you to be on. Well, you always need to take some time. And a moment to unwind and chill. And there's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. 
Coors Light wants you to know that no matter what sport is on this fall, Saturdays are your time to chill. Even if your team isn't playing this year, there are still plenty of teams and sports on TV that can give you the excuse to chill and drink a beer. Great for chilling on a Saturday or Sunday and watching football, having Coors Light next to you, making sure those mountains are blue. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. Perfect for a moment to unwind. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind, so when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door at get.coorslight.com. Again, that's get.coorslight.com. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. I gotta tell you about the best protein bar on the market. That, of course, is Built Bar. With new flavors seemingly coming out all the time, including one of my new favorites is the Caramel Brownie and the Cookies and Cream, both of which I recently got through Built Bar. They are awesome. Bars are covered in 100% chocolate. They're soft and easy to choose. And the best part of all of this is that even though it tastes like a candy bar, they are healthy for you. They're perfect if you're trying to maintain weight, lose weight, whatever. Built Bar is the way to go. Just take the peanut butter brownie for a second here. 19 grams of protein, only 180 calories, only 5 grams of sugar, and only 5 grams of net carbs. That's what you're getting with Built Bar. You're getting a delicious reward for your workout while also making a super healthy choice as well. And right now, Built Bar, a new offer for you here for fans of the Locked On Syracuse podcast and the rest of the Locked On Podcast Network. Go to BuiltBar.com, use the promo code LOCKEDON, and you will get 20% off your next order. BuiltBar.com, use the promo code LOCKEDON, all one word, and you will get 20% off your next order. The other thing with him, and you talked about how he just was a four-on-five offensive guy at times. It was like it was a power play. He finishes 10.5% of SU shots came from Barama Sidibe last year. That was the second lowest from one player in the ACC of eligible players who were playing you know, an appropriate amount of minutes to be in the conversation. So of rotation players, essentially, he had the second lowest amount of shots per game and per percentage of SU plays come from Brahma Sidibe. So that that's concerning because obviously he's effective when he does get his shots, but there were stretches last year where I checked the box score and it was like, huh, Brahma Sidibe has not missed a shot in the last nine games. And that wasn't a compliment. It was more, holy cow, he's only attempted 11 shots in nine games or something like that. And he's our starting center who's playing a bulk of the minutes at the five position. He basically got to a point last year where it was a pick and roll, and the guy who was coming around him and dribbling around him never even looked to go down low to Sidibe. Then the last six games, he started to prove that he was a little more efficient down there and a little better finisher, and they started looking his way, and that opened up the entire offense. And with him, too, and we started to see this with Pascal Chukwu, towards the end of his career, but the alley-oop became more and more prevalent for him, I think, towards the end of that season. And, I mean, it's one of the most effective ways to score. If There's not going to be defensive attention on him, and you're going to have an open lane, and you get Joe Girard on a pick-and-roll, and he gets up and throws another lob to him. That's an easy way to score, and that's something that he started to capitalize on. He started finishing around the hoop, because remember, some of those were not easy for him from the beginning and now he's starting to capitalize and I think that's part of his health improving too another thing that when we talk about the fouls I brought up the a lot of them felt like we're rebounding another one was the screens 
He's not one of the better screen setters that yeah. Syracuse has had. And we see this out. And I think this also comes back to the fact that he is not the most filled out. He's very slender, very thin. So we'll have to see what his gains are when he gets into – well, he's already back on campus. But we'll have to see it once he's actually suited up and on the floor. But if he's getting moved by some of these smaller guys – and you're seeing these moving screens, I think some of them could have been avoided if he was just a little bulkier. And maybe that's something that we'll see change this upcoming season. Yeah, there's definitely been some talk that has been encouraging to an extent that he, I've seen it out there that he's put on 15, 20 pounds of muscle. That falls into the category for me of let's take that. I don't care that. if it's muscle. I don't care if it's gummy bears. Like, at this <laughs> right. point, just put, put on the weight. Yeah, do what you got to do. I mean, maybe just go hardcore on the quarantine pasta or something, but he, he is very skinny. And the problem is it's not like, I mean, Quincy Garrier was the strongest guy they had or the heaviest guy they had on the roster last year. And Quincy Garrier is, I think six, eight and he plays six, seven, I believe. Yeah, yeah. If that he plays the, the small forward wing position for you. So you don't really want him to be the heaviest guy on the team, especially when you consider they're, they're going to be playing against the likes of UNC and Virginia again this year, for sure. And those are two of the top four, maybe five best front courts in all of college basketball, kind of year in and year out. And again, it's going to be the case this year. And then even we talked about Rutgers yesterday. They've got some good size in their roster and matchups like that. At guard, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. So he's going to be put to the test. And, and I think the biggest thing for Barama, like I said, is just can he limit the fouls and can he become a smarter defender? Because teams were able to score at will at the rim last year. And we thrown out the percentage number that, that it was, it was the highest mark it's been in a while. I think it was right around 65%. If I'm remembering correctly on opponents field goal percentage at the rim last year, that kind of falls on Barama. And if it doesn't fall on Barama and it's Anselm, who's getting the bulk of those minutes and the bulk of, kind of the struggles there, then it still falls on Barama because to me, as a senior, he has to be at a point now where we can trust him to play a huge chunk of the minutes. And then also he has to be at a point where if he has three fouls and we're going into the early stages of the second half in a big game, Bayheim has to be like, okay, Barama, you're a senior. Go out there. Don't make a silly foul. Understand your value for the team. I think you bring up something important there, how – He isn't the greatest around the rim, even though the block numbers might suggest that. I mean, you look at Syracuse as a team last year, 11th in block percentage, and then Barama as an individual from a season ago, he was top 60 in the country in block percentage. And listen, Pau Gasol was a great shot blocker too. Wasn't a great defender though. And there is a fine line between the two. You can get away with your height, your length, and Barama's got plenty of both. And you'll have to see him now develop as a defender, especially when he's maybe taken away from the the circle area underneath the hoop. And again, part of this might be the defensive transitions on the other side, whether it's Quincy missing an assignment or maybe Elijah missed some here and there, Marek, all of it. That, that all gets put into the equation here. But I think a successful season for Sidibe is at the end of the year, we're looking at a guy and we're saying, wow, thank God we have this extra waiver year and he can come back and play for this team if he wants to instead of, ugh, I hope he doesn't come back. Right. That's the conversation we need to be having about him. That's the conversation that's going to determine whether or not he had a successful season is if 
we're having the conversation framed that way. All right, so we wrap up all these 10 thoughts by doing a prop shot bet, and we've been tracking them all throughout our preview series here. We'll give you our final tallies on Twitter probably when it's all over, but let's set the over-under prop shot bet for Barama Sidibe points. I'm thinking it has to be, for the entire season, like seven, seven and a half. Is that kind of what you would think? Yeah. Right, yeah, I think seven and a half is that fair number. I am actually going to go under on this one because... When I look at it, he's never averaged more than six points per game. And let's be honest, that six points per game from a season ago is largely aided by the finish he had. I think he had a game where he aver- where he scored 17, which is obviously going to give you a huge boost. So when you're averaging almost 10 to close out the final six games, that right there is going to give you a, a bit of a bump in your statistics, a generous bump. So he's probably averaging around like five, five and a half last year. I don't know if he can take a two-point jump especially because you've got a lot of offensive weapons coming in now. When you look at a guy like Kadari Richmond, when you look at someone like Alan Griffin coming in, I think there aren't going to be a lot of points to be had. And remember, this was a Syracuse team from a season ago that was uncharacteristically good on offense. So I think you are going to see a dip in the offensive production in general. And I just think Barama isn't going to be someone who's going to be taking a bigger piece of the scoring pie per se for this upcoming season. I'm going to go over. I think that I'm a little more optimistic that he gives us what he gave us at the end of the season last year in the final six games, or at least some signs of that. He'll probably average like 7.7 points per game or something and just eclipse this. Another thing that I believe, this is kind of maybe overthinking it, but we'll go into my conversation of why he will go over the 7.5. Their schedule is probably not going to be that great non-conference-wise outside of Rutgers and Even Georgetown is the worst team in the Big East by many accounts right now. So there's going to be opportunities to be had in the non-conference portion for him to get off to a good start and score in double figures pretty frequently. And if you remember at times last year, he kind of feasted in the non-conference portion when you played against weaker teams. So I bet he kind of inflates his stats early on and then he sort of holds on to it and progressively gets a little bit better at limiting fouls and everything and Plus, like, you lose Hughes, so that's that's some opportunity for scoring to improve. So Yeah, I guess my only counter to that would be I don't think there's going to be as many non-conference games this year that's as true. we've seen in prior seasons. So yeah. maybe there's less chance for him to pad. But, hey, if he's good, as good as he was to close out last year, then you're, you're going to hit that over with, with pretty good confidence and pretty much cruise to the finish line there. But I think that we, we are going to see a little bit of regression. We're not going to see the last six games of Barama for an entire season play out. All right, let's uh, take a quick break. An interesting article came out this week from Nate Mink, actually more of an interview, and diving into kind of Syracuse football recruiting and what are some of the hurdles that they face. We'll chat about that after this break. All right, shout out to Nate Mink over at Syracuse.com. Very fascinating interview Q&A article that he did. I think this was last week. We're kind of catching up Yeah, here. I was heading into Wake Forest because the man we're about he's, that he talked to, Asil Mulba, worked at Wake Forest, worked at Syracuse. He was kind of comparing and contrasting a couple of schools that have similar recruiting battles and basically a guy who was in the in the driver's seat for both the recruiting departments. And he went through some of the differences and similarities that those 
schools face when they're trying to compete in a conference that has largely been a two or three school race over the past decade. Yeah, so he's the former SU football recruiting director and one of the OGs on Dino's staff, one of the first guys that came in, now working for the Buffalo Bills, but took some time with Nate Mink here to kind of talk about what were the hurdles on his job, what did they try to do, their philosophy, along with Dino's philosophy when he was there at Syracuse in terms of recruiting. Some interesting takeaways from this. Uh, one of the biggest ones is how close Brock Purdy was to coming to Syracuse in that same year that they nabbed Chance Amy and flipped his commitment on signing day. Chance Amy, of course, was originally committed to Houston and then visited Syracuse a week before. And I'd say kind of my biggest just overarching theme from this article, kind of sort of a bleak read from the perspective that I do feel like he brings up a lot of good points and a lot of things we've talked about on how the facilities aren't great, and they are, and that's facing. something too. That was one of the big things that I took away is that when you've got your director of recruiting, former director of recruiting, going out there and kind of saying that, yeah, these facilities weren't great, yeah. and not only that, but the staff and the guys that were out there doing all the work. It he wasn't the most endearing. He said, "I thought we were lacking as a staff," and when I hear that, and and he's not talking about Dino, he's yeah. kind of talking about the the recruiting operations and stuff like that and he was a guy who tried to trade or to try to change all of that and he got just too good at his job it feels like I mean you saw Syracuse they had a little bit of a boom there in that one class when you think of they bring in DeVito and, and Cisco and Trill and all those guys and and then Elton Robinson's a, a grad transfer to or not a grad transfer he's just a, a strict transfer a JUCO transfer they had a little boom there, and then a seal leaves, takes an NFL job because that's the natural progression. It feels like, yeah. And now he's he's with the Buffalo Bills, and that's something that Syracuse. I mean, you're, he even talked about some of the departures have really killed this program, and one of the ones he brings up is Sean Lewis, and I think that's a that's one that maybe we weren't looking close enough at. Because totally. Sean Lewis leaving, I mean, the offense has been a mess since he's left. And quarterback has been the big bugaboo for this program, which is a terrible bugaboo to have, considering how valuable a quarterback is. And Asil does a great job of talking about how quarterback is big, not just because it's the most important position on the field and it can dictate the direction of your program more than any other position. But on top of that, it sets the tone for your recruiting class. If you can nab right. a, a highly touted quarterback early, he brought up how Tommy DeVito in that class that you mentioned was able to then take Trill on his official visit. And then they get a four star and Trill Williams, who's turned out to be one of the program's better players in the Dino era. That's also kind of come to fruition now in the Justin Lampson class that we've highlighted a lot. This twenty twenty one. Yeah, we talked cycle. about that a lot too. Yeah. And how Lampson was important because you got the quarterback in. Now the quarterback's gonna do some recruiting for you. And and that's important. And he kind of talked about that because Sean Lewis was in charge of recruiting those quarterbacks. You lose him, you lose your main recruiting pipeline and your main recruiting communicator at the most important position in all of sports. Yeah. And when you lose that, your program is naturally going to take a little bit of a dip. And Sean Lewis was at that camp with Brock Purdy and Chance Amy. And while they both, I think it's the consensus I'm getting from this article is that they liked Chance Amy more than Brock Purdy. And that's fine. Okay. 
we'll never know who won that battle in terms of who was the well, better player. Well, Purdy won, but it, it's Purdy's won, but we just we don't know what Chance Amy was going to be. I mean, it, it sounds like Eric Dungey wanted Chance Amy to be next in line after he left. Yeah, but he did not fit culturally saw. whatsoever, and right. now he he hasn't really panned out. I, I he hasn't forget. fit culturally anywhere in yeah. D one sense. So Purdy won that. I mean, let's not. But they can have misses. I'm not saying that's a terrible thing. It's just, I think it's pretty obvious that we would have rather had Brock Purdy than Chance Amy. Well, you would have rather had the way that it played out. I'm not going to say that Chance, because what if Chance Amy, let's let's just take culture aside. It seems like the talent was definitely above Brock Purdy. Like Brock Purdy wasn't flying off the charts and, and they admit as much. It was Kind of, I think if they had their pick, they would have picked Chance Amy. Yes. And they had their pick, and, and they got Chance Amy. So I don't think that's the, the biggest knock for the recruiting. It was when you do have these battles and stuff like that, it just shows how important the quarterback is and maintaining. And if he's not a cultural fit, well, maybe you should have sought that out and, and figured that out before you extended him a scholarship offer. Because when you – and we're seeing this play out perfectly right now. When you don't have a plan and you don't have anything in reserve at quarterback, if you don't have bullets in the chamber, you're screwed. I mean, look at this team this year. They're screwed. And it's because they don't have a quarterback. Well, they might in Jacoby and Morgan if if Dino gives them a shot. Fingers crossed. Yes. No, I I mean, it's no coincidence that Tommy DeVito and Justin Lampson were signed early in the process, or committed, I guess I should say, and then those happen to be the two best classes that Dino has had in every statistical category and just eye test, too. In his, what, five, six-year tenure now of recruiting classes, those have been the two best, and those have really been the only two where they've gotten a quarterback that has been someone that you can boast about and someone early in the cycle. Amy was good, but he was so late in the cycle, he didn't really get to reap any rewards of the trickle-down of other guys coming because he came. So... That's huge, and that's why I think we really like this 2021 class is because they do have a guy we really like in Justin Lampson. And there's a couple other points in here that I want to bring up quickly before we wrap. Dino, in his process on recruiting quarterbacks, it seems like he's very deliberate and he's very focused on making sure that he sees these guys in person because he understands the importance of quarterback, which I get. And he really wants to make sure that they have everything tied together between the ears as well. Now, they might have missed on that on Chance Amy, but I like that philosophy. Maybe you you might reevaluate, though, considering the lack of success you've had at the quarterback position since Sean Lewis has left. And Dino's been open about we need to reevaluate the quarterback position and what we're doing there. And the thing that... I guess is frustrating is that how do you let that slip through the cracks, the most important position? And, and Mulba talks about this with Nate Mink, where you've got guys all the time. They're three-star guys, but you've got the Penn States of the world and these bigger programs that are looking, at least regionally, that are looking at these guys, Ohio States, all that stuff. They're looking at some of these three-star guys, and it's because of the culture fit. Because guess what? At the end of the day, Penn State, Ohio State, all those big Northeast, Midwest schools that Syracuse kind of competes with for some of these recruits, they can have a four or five star guy if they want to. So when they're doing the digging for some of these three star guys, it's because they're a good fit in some way. And Syracuse, and he he brings up the example of Andre Sisco, great fit. 
You saw he was getting attention from Vanderbilt and Northwestern. So not only does he have size, speed, and and all the other intangibles that you like on a football field, but it shows he's committed in the classroom as well, and he's going to be a good fit in the locker room, good fit with the guys. And that's important. And that's something that with Syracuse, I mean, we've seen this team go off the rails a couple times in the, in the past couple years. And it's because yeah. maybe you didn't have the right culture fits. He brings up Evan Foster, great culture fit. And guess what? Evan Foster had a heck of a career at Syracuse, and I'm honestly surprised he's not somewhere in the NFL right now. Yeah, very under-recruited too. Now, those are some good points for sure. All right, that's going to do it for today's episode, and be sure to check out that Nate Mink article on Syracuse.com if you haven't already. Tomorrow on the show, all basketball, we're going to dive into the strengths and weaknesses on the Syracuse basketball team as we continue to preview the season here. So for Tyler, I'm Tim. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow.